brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello there, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Well, that's a great way to start this podcast. <laughs> As usual, uh, if you know the source of the quote, please feel free to drop by uh, Facebook or Twitter and let us know. Yeah, I thought that one was appropriate because uh, the discussion we're going to have does play somewhat into the realm of artificial intelligence. Somewhat. We're going to talk about technology and its effect on our noggins, specifically Ah, gray matter, that brain that's sloshing around in that cranium of yours. Yeah, this is uh, this has been a topic of some debate recently, um, probably, I guess, more over the past year, um, thanks to our. Uh, not really good friend, but someone we follow closely, uh, Nicholas Carr. Yeah. He's a technology writer. He wrote an interesting article for The Atlantic back in 2008, uh, and it was titled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Wow, is it that long ago? Yeah, it was 2008. Wow. July, August 2008 edition. I've got it up right now. Yeah. So, uh, he yeah. also, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, he, he wrote this article, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And it was an interesting um just an interesting take on technology, the way we consume information, and the way we think. Yes, and uh, he actually followed that up with a, a much longer format, a, a whole book called The Shallows, um, which uh, some people have uh, <laughs> taken issue with the title, suggesting he's already decided that we're all stupid. But uh, I'm not so certain that he actually me- meant it that way. Yeah, I, that that's that sounds to me like the sort of criticism one might make before fully uh, reading a book. <laughs> you yes. know, one of those things where it's just your initial reaction to a title, and then you sure. Yeah. So let me let me give you a little story here, Chris. Yes. All right. Uh, now, when I was going to school, the uh, the internet was not really something I had access to all the way up until until the point where I got into college. Really, my sophomore year in college was when I was starting to really get get access to the internet. Okay, I can uh, relate to that. So, up to that point, I studied just the the normal way. You would attend classes, you would read uh, study notes and read books and that sort of thing, and that's how you you would gain knowledge. Mm -hmm. Now, today, uh, I work for a company where I write articles and blog posts and do podcasts where I have to research various topics, new ones each week. I'm doing so using the internet. Uh, meanwhile, I also am tapped into various communication tools such as instant messenger, email. I've got text messaging on my phone when it works. We're recording this on the day that my Android phone died. Anyway, uh, normally I have access to multiple means of communication and this would presumably give me access to to amounts of information I never would have had access to before, mm-hmm. right? A huge, deep, broad scope of information. Yes. However, 
despite this amazing ability to tap into lots of information, I find that it is much more difficult to concentrate on a single task for any length of time. Mm-hmm. And so I have decided that technology is to blame and uh, it is ruining my brain. Now, what could possibly be wrong with this argument? Well, I would say that you're using anecdotal evidence. It's a good point. <laughs> yes. I am speaking from my own experience. Uh, I have not conducted any uh, any. any deep study of this, mainly because I can't concentrate on that task for long enough <laughs> to do it. Um, yeah, this is, it is anecdotal. It's, now that does not mean that the information is wrong. No. Right? Mm-mm. Yeah, so this is, this is something that I wanted to address early in this podcast because this is really going to be an interesting philosophical discussion. It's not just technology, it's really philosophy. And part of that philosophy is that Anecdotal evidence is not really good evidence to base an argument off of, but True. but that does not mean that it is invalid. It just means that you know there there are better ways to support your argument. Mm-hmm. Now I, I've read a, uh, quite a bit of agreement with uh, Mr. Carr's work, and I've also read quite a bit of disagreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the disagreement I have read suggests that they all think. Uh, you know, he's either afraid of technology or that he's basing it on his own anecdotal evidence, which um, I think the anecdotal evidence sort of started him down the path. But in the shallows, he does explain uh, in a number of studies uh, that have been done on the uh, um, attention span of people who are using technology for work. Um, and and therefore, you know, I am inclined to say that he's not. I'm, I'm, while I'm not necessarily agreeing with his arguments in both the article and the book, I would say that um, there is a, at least a kernel of truth in it that it can be very difficult for some people to manage the uh, flow of information coming to them from multiple sources, especially the Internet, where there are so many different kinds of sources um, to choose from. Yeah, and going further than that, he Carr makes his argument in in his article, and I'm Mm -hmm. sure in the book as well, but he makes his argument that reading and the way we consume information shapes the way we think. So the argument here is that there, there are two different ways you can think about thinking mm-hmm. okay there's the the method where you say our brains are structured in such a way that thinking is a process that is going to be the same no matter how you consume your information mm-hmm. like it's just it's just a device in a way we're just reducing it in complexity to call it a device it's a device that can accept information and then process it and then we act on that information in some way mm-hmm. The other argument is that the brain is a very elastic, flexible organ that, yes. that will generate different ways of thinking based upon the stimuli that it encounters. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that argument makes a lot of sense because uh, one of the, the sources that Carr cites in his article is Marianne Wolfe's Proust and the Squid, mm-hmm. which is a book about reading and learning. Yes. And... Marianne Wolf argues that humans are not born with the ability to read. 
True. It's not an innate ability that we possess, unlike, say, vision or hearing, where we can interpret the information in the world around us using those sensory organs. That's something that's innate. That, yes. That unless you have some sort of uh, disability or, or disease or whatever or, or some other form of, of uh, uh impediment to those senses, you can, that's one way you can gather information and learn about your environment. Mm-hmm. Reading is a skill that we had to invent and develop over time. Mm-hmm. And it's relatively recent. It's just a couple thousand years old. And that through reading, we changed the way we thought. So the developing reading was a skill that we had to learn uh, through reading we changed the way we learn. Mm-hmm. We could preserve information unlike we could before. Like before, it was all folklore, right? You passed it down by explaining to people you know, what you knew, and then they would take the words you said, and they would apply it so that they would understand the concept, and then they would have to pass it on. But there was no easy way to share that information. It meant that knowledge was kept in small pools across the human race. Mm-hmm. Writing allowed us to to keep that information in a locked format so that future generations could benefit from it. Right. It could be fixed in some way for, you know, perhaps hundreds of years. Yeah. So that, that people could read an original account or at least a particular account of an event or, you know, to tell a story. Now, Carr says, actually has a, a very interesting little passage where he talks about how Socrates... Uh, sorry, Socrates. How Socrates bemoaned the development of writing mm-hmm. because he thought that by writing things down, you did two things. One, you reduced a person's ability to actually take in information, understand it, comprehend it, and then build on it. Okay. Right? Because now yeah. it's in a concrete format. And two, he was afraid that it would give people a false sense of knowledge. Hmm. That because there was a written thing down, there was a written format of this information, that that would make people th- feel like they knew more than they did. The knowledge was written down. It wasn't necessarily in the person's head. Mm-hmm. And so he was worried that people would become less wise over time because they would be relying upon this written information. They wouldn't really understand it. They would just think they did. Hence Carr's argument. Exactly. Carr takes that to a further extent. Mm -hmm. Now, um, like many, many people, I've uh, read uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done Mm -hmm. because... There are just so many things I have to do in a day, a typical day here at HowStuffWorks.com and my, my own personal stuff that I wanted to improve my productivity. And one of the things that uh, that Alan argues is that it is stressful to try to remember all the things that you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things he says that is important for you to do is to write something down as soon as it occurs to you. Uh, so that you have, you know, have it written down that you know you need to do it. You don't have to remember it anymore. You need to put it in some sort of system. Now it could be a piece of paper. It could be uh, a smartphone. It could be whatever. It doesn't right, matter right. what the medium is in this case. Um, but you need to write it down some way. And that sort of plays into, uh, you know, Socrates slash Carr's argument because if you're documenting everything, you don't have to remember it anymore. Uh, for, for Alan, that is a sort, a sense 
sense of relief. You don't have to remember it anymore. You can take a deep breath and relax knowing that you're going to remember to do this thing because you've written it down. Right. Um, on the other hand, however, you have uh, the other argument that, well, you don't have to remember it anymore. So you're not training your brain to remember all the things that you have to do. And you you're don't not, have to focus on it. Yeah, you're not making connections. That's yes. another thing that Marianne Wolf mentions in her book is that the brain makes actual neuron connections kind of like circuits really sure uh, for concepts and you can start to connect seemingly unrelated concepts in your brain uh, just by thinking about it concentrating on it uh, it's not just that you know you you encounter information and now you know it it's that you encounter information you think about it mm-hmm. you uh, actually take the time to consider it and you start building connections from other information you've gathered previously and you form new knowledge based on that it's it's similar to a process a a, um, a philosophy known as contemplative learning mm-hmm. in contemplative learning the goal is to actually take time to consider the information that you have just encountered mm-hmm. and to incorporate that into your body of knowledge, not just to say, oh, I uh, I encountered this fact, but to really have a deeper understanding of what that fact means, what's it, what is its relevance, its context, that sort of thing. It's sort of an element of critical thinking, mm-hmm. but it's a particular, a particular way to get to critical thinking. It also, depending on how much you read about contemplative learning, it can start start sounding a little touchy-feely. Mm-hmm. It's uh, got a lot of elements of meditation in there, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of tie-ins between contemplative learning and spirituality, things that someone who may be more skeptical might find a little um, questionable. Right. All right? But the idea here is that you are allowing these connections to be made. You're not just encountering information, reacting, and then discarding. Right. Which is, that, that's kind of what Carr's argument is. Mm-hmm. That the, the way we encounter information now on the web, we will look for some relevant facts for whatever it is we're searching on. And if we don't see it pretty quickly, we'll bounce to another source, right? Yes. And we may never go back to that first source ever again. Mm-hmm. We've uh, mentioned that that uh, study by the Hans Brito Institute in Germany several times on the podcast now mm-hmm. um, in which they had studied what uh, some people call the web generation. Um, and uh, also an, another group in Britain had uh, had had done this, and I scrolled past the name of it, um, the Center for Information Behavior and the Evolution of Research. Oh, Cyber. Cyber at the University College London. Both did similar studies on young people who were sort of expected to know how to use all the ins and outs of the Internet because, uh, they, because were, they grew up with it. Yeah, I mean, they, were, they, they, were were born, already, they were born after the Internet went public. Yes. Um, I studied this in, my, uh, in pursuit of my uh, Master of Science in Information Sciences degree um, because I was looking at in, in the way people seek information. And those studies both back up car in that regard, in that people tend to look for information on the internet. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with whether or not it's making you more or less intelligent. Right. Uh, it's the way see- people seek information on the internet, and they do. They skim from site to site. They hop around a lot. Um, very few people spend a lot of time on websites when they are seeking information on a particular topic. 
Um, And uh, I I should point out, too, that um, the people who have been demonizing Carr for making these arguments, uh, he says, look, no, I'm a writer. I absolutely need the Internet. The Internet has completely revolutionized the way I search for information. Mm -hmm. And it's awesome and it's brilliant. It just seems to be, anecdotally, it seems to be changing the way I think, you know. Which may not be a bad thing. No. Changing the way we think. This has been the history of technology and ways of recording information. Uh, It's just one of those things where we do start to adapt the way we think. It's Mm -hmm. something that's really unavoidable. I mean, unless you become a Luddite and you decide that you're going to go and adopt Socrates' manner and try and gain information that way. And even then, it's just on an individual basis. You're not going to stop the way the world is going. Um, And yeah, the study that you were referring to, the cyber study, Mm -hmm. uh, let me read exactly what their finding was. It was called, um, they called it horizontal information seeking. Mm -hmm. This is a form of skimming activity where people view just one or two pages from an academic site and then bounce out, perhaps never to return. Mm Mm-hmm. The figures are instructive. Around 60% of e-journal users view no more than three pages, and a majority, up to 65%, never return. Mm -hmm. So the suggestion there is that people are able to find information, but they may not necessarily comprehend it fully. So it it, it becomes sort of like our brains become filters, Mm -hmm. right? We start filtering out anything that's not relevant to whatever it is we're searching, Mm -hmm. and we sort of we sort of pinpoint anything that is relevant right and then uh even Carr will mention um and and also clive thompson of mm-hmm. wired who wrote about this yes. as well he he had a, an interesting article uh about the let's see why he called it he your outboard brain knows all mm-hmm. was the title of his article and he's written about the subject multiple times as well he writes about how he uses various things like the email and wikipedia and other internet sites to rely on information so that he no longer retains it himself mm-hmm. and that he he thinks of it as a richer thinking experience that he can add really valuable information in arguments and discussions by linking to it uh so it almost becomes like oh i know i you know i saw this i found this information it's relevant to this discussion here you go mm-hmm. but that's really oh, that's incredibly different from understanding retaining and and being able to articulate information. It just means that you're really good at searching. Yeah. But that might be what the new definition of intelligence is. It may not be that it's rotting our brains. But, you know, we kind of jokingly uh, titled the, the podcast that. Yeah. But that it's it's changing the the focus of how we think. Instead of thinking in one way, we're now becoming really good at seeking out and uh, pulling up information. Mm-hmm. Although that... That also takes practice because the the studies showed that students weren't necessarily uh, innately gifted with that ability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now there was an article called, uh, and of course, the Carr's title has been echoed in other titles, so this is going to sound very familiar. Uh, an article titled titled "Does Google Make Us Stupid?" by um, by Jana Quitney Anderson from Elon University and Lee Rainey from the Pew Internet and American Life Project. Um, and uh, they actually had uh, referred to uh, a rebuttal from uh, uh, Jamey Cassio. I hope I'm pronouncing uh, his name right, um, who is an affiliate at the Institute for the Future and a senior fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Um, and in response, 
to that, uh, they had spoken with Nicholas Carr, who said, you know, clarified a little bit more to say uh, the answer to our question, our, our the question we pose in our podcast title is no. It's not about whether your IQ is dropping. Your intelligence quotient has nothing to do with this. It's it's whether or not people are becoming utilitarian thinkers. Um, but uh, Cassio uh, quoted uh, neurophysiologist William Calvin, who basically said that. Uh, was referring to a, an ancient volcanic incident mm-hmm. uh, that that humanity learned from in, in order in order to survive, and uh, basically the argument in the uh, in that article, which uh, uh, is really really awesome, uh, and also on the uh, the Atlantic, uh, basically is look, this is a new way of thinking. We'll adapt to it, and we're going to have to adapt to it if we're going to survive because there's so much going on now, so many different kinds of events. Technology has advanced to the point where we are going to have to think differently, and we'll just have to get used to uh, what he calls fluid intelligence. Actually, scientists call it fluid intelligence, which is uh, the ability to find meaning in confusion and to solve new problems. Uh, as the quote there. Um, basically, it's not memorizing or reciting facts. It's to sort of think on your feet, if you will. Um, and basically, his argument is, no, you know, it's it, it may seem a little weird. It may seem a little funky and, and possibly even scary to some people to mm-hmm. have to uh, think uh, in, in this new paradigm. But um, we will. We'll learn, and it will be able to use our brains and this new technology, we just have to get used to it. And we've kind of addressed this sort of in our podcast about how to conduct research online. Mm-hmm. It's kind of talking about how to use this tool in the most effective way. And, yeah. and critical thinking is still very important, even in this new paradigm of thinking. It's just that critical thinking, the definition of it may have to be tweaked. Mm-hmm. Rather than sitting there and saying, all right, well, you have to really consider this information. It might be you have to be able to evaluate things like the source, uh, its validity, uh, its relevance. You may have to be able to do that on a, a, a very tight schedule. You may have to mm-hmm. do it quickly because there's so much out there that you have to be able to separate the good from the bad uh, quickly or else you're just overwhelmed with information, some of which may not be very valuable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that uh, Carr points out um, that the Internet can be a very interruptive medium, too. Yes. That you know, if you have alerts turned on, um, if you're a Mac user and you have Growl turned on, or if you're using Windows and have um, uh, Outlook open and you have the little uh, windows popping up, for example, here at work, or uh, throwing around story ideas, and everyone else starts joining in, all of a sudden you have new alerts popping up on your desktop every five or six minutes, or or, or, or more, more frequently, depending yeah. on how how often you turn it on. So and, perhaps and how you're many working. Jokes are being thrown in there. True. Uh, but yeah, if you're working on a project and you have these constant interruptions from IM and Twitter and your email, they may distract you depending on the way you're thinking. They may distract you from what it is that you're working on. Um, and that can be, that can be disruptive, especially for somebody who's used to thinking in a, a very linear fashion. Yeah, that actually brings us to another study I wanted to mention in passing at least. Sure. Mm-hmm. The Psychonomic Bulletin and Review article, Supertaskers Profiles in Extraordinary Multitasking Ability. And, uh, this oh, is was, that all? Yeah, this was a study by Jason M. Watson and David L. Strayer. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to see, you know, people 
are getting accustomed to having to multitask. Yes. Mm-hmm. But most of us aren't very good at it. No. He wanted to kind of see exactly how how well people could deal with handling more than one task at a time. It also ties into the the statement about how using a cell phone while driving is equivalent to uh, driving while under the influence of alcohol. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually worse than driving under the influence of alcohol, depending upon the study. Mm-hmm. So what he did was he and Strayer, actually he and they did, uh, they, they took 200 subjects. Mm-hmm. So small sample size. We should go ahead and sure, that. yeah, you know, two hundred subjects. Scientific, and, but could be more scientific, right? <laughs> You're not scientific enough. <laughs> but they took two hundred subjects and they they gave them tasks where they had to juggle multiple tasks at the same time. Mm-hmm. They found that all but two point five percent of the subjects performed poorly when having to do multiple tasks at once. Yes. So. Uh, they could still perform the tasks, but they couldn't do it with the level of proficiency they could if they were concentrating on just one task at a time. Mm-hmm. 2.5% of those people could handle it without any demonstrative reduction in their abilities. So they were apparently able to do multiple tasks just as well as if they were concentrating on a single one at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, these 2.5% were called super taskers. Now, the interesting thing is that most of us think we're super taskers, even if we aren't. Yes. That, that was another element of the, the study is that people who thought that they were really, really good at this, uh, th- there were way more people who thought they were really good at it than the actual people who were. Right. Like you only had 2.5% who were good at it, but almost everyone thought they were in mm-hmm. that 2.5%. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it may be that the super tasking phenomenon is something that will grow over time. It may be that we as a species will adapt to this multitasking uh, demand and that future generations will actually be super taskers. Mm-hmm. Now, currently, it's n- it doesn't look like that's the case. It looks like most of us aren't super taskers. But it may be that that's part of this process of the way we change our thinking, that future generations of humans will actually be very adept at supertasking. Uh, and, of course, then there's also another science fiction need kind of argument where you could say, yeah, or, or the singularity will take care of it. Yeah. Because we'll all have, you know... Uh, 64 core processors in our heads and we'll be able to handle 64 distinct processes at the same time without any reduction in uh, proficiency. That would be really useful. I wouldn't mind having that. Yeah, I wouldn't either, except my phone just died and I can only <laughs> imagine what would happen if the processor in my brain died. <laughs> yeah, that could be that could be problematic. But but that that kind of ties into this whole technology rotting your brain thing. Again, it's it's not it's we should we should go so far as to say it's not the technology that's doing this. No, it's it's not technology's fault at all. Yeah, so we do not hate technology. We aren't afraid of technology. Chris and I both embrace technology. We work for a technology company. Yes. Uh, we each have our own gadgets that are hooked into various networks. Um, it's just that it's the the process of tr- having to deal with so many different lines of communication when we're not used to that. That's mm-hmm. not how we've trained our brains over the last hundreds of generations, really. Yeah, yeah. And it's that uh, 
that you know we had to develop new skills in order to consume information. There's so much information out there that you had to do it if you weren't wanted to have a meaningful experience. Right, right. And I think too the thing to keep in mind for both people on both sides of this argument is it's going to it's all going to depend on the individual. Some people process information differently from the way other people process information, and uh, you know it, it's safe to say that someone like the uh, Nicholas Carr spoke with many of the other writers that he knows and said, you know, look, I can't, it's hard for me to focus on reading a book when I've been spending my time with the internet because I'm, I've been immersing myself in a very, uh, and a very short message, uh, very immediate message type of thing. And then I sit down with a, a book and it's difficult for me to concentrate because I keep wondering what's going on on the internet. Yeah. Um, and, and for them, that may be the case, but it may not be for some of the people who are saying, well, you know, you guys are crazy. That's absolutely not the way we think. You're, you're just, you know, afraid of technology and, and you honestly don't know how to manage it and you need to find a technology that's, that you can use to manage your other technologies. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's true. Yeah. It's for, hard to say one person, but maybe not for the other. Well, so, you can say at least that there seems to be some relevance to his argument in the in the sense that old media adopts new ways of presenting information that are similar to the way new media does. Well, Marshall McLuhan pointed that out long before the Internet became something uh, you know, to, for people to consider is sure. the medium is the message. Uh, you can't separate that the the actual medium it comes to you in is also part of the message itself, and right. that you you can't separate them completely from one another. That's why an ebook is different from a paper book. Well, it's also it also shows how old media has tried to adapt by doing things like you may look at a magazine and you see sure. that there are a lot of little uh, boxes that have. Uh, an excerpt from that very article that you're reading. Mm -hmm. Like if you were to read the full article and then read the little box, you would realize, hey, this is just a quote that comes right from the article. But that's a whole quote. Yeah, it's an attempt to to give relevant information in a very quick, efficient way for people who that's how they consume information. It's also a good way to fill two inches if you can't find a shop ad. (laughs) Okay, but I'm trying to say here (laughs) that the internet has kind of trained us all to to consume information that way. We're looking for the the relevant facts as quickly as possible, and everything else is kind of in the way. And that's sort of how this old media is kind of adopting mm-hmm. it, too. They're like, well, you know what? If we don't play that game, no one's going to buy the magazine, so mm-hmm. let's do it this way. And um, uh, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit, just just sort of closing out. Sure. There are two different uh, uh, concepts I wanted to get across to our audience. Uh, one is epistemology. Mm-hmm which is the philosophy of knowledge and how we gain knowledge and what knowledge is. Yeah. That's sort of guided a lot of this discussion. Yeah. Because there is a difference between information and knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, you can encounter yes. information, be able to recite information. doesn't mean you know it. Not, not necessarily anyway, depending on how you define know, really, because, again, this is philosophy. Mm-hmm. So that's a fascinating subject. If you're interested in this, I would recommend looking into epistemology and some of the writers who are really known for their, their work in that field of philosophy. Uh, the other is cognitive science, mm-hmm. which again is sort of how we learn and and what processes are important in the way we learn. And uh, it's just one sort of branch of science that kind of tackles that. And again, it has a lot to do with psychology. It has a lot to do with uh, uh, various forms of, of uh, imparting information or absorbing information. That's also really interesting to me. So those two different 
fields are something I would recommend listeners look into if they find this topic really fascinating. Yeah. And if you don't, then I apologize for the last 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I, I don't think there is, other than uh, the uh, literal uh, answer, no, technology is not rotting our brains, at least it doesn't appear to be at this point. Um, I haven't seen any studies that, that suggest that, and even Nicholas Carr said, no, I, that's not what I meant. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I think we're going to have to do a lot of thinking about because the internet is still very new to many of us. Um, uh, and, and, you know, even those of us who have, like me, who have had, you know, 20 years of experience using the internet, you know, I, I still don't think that's long enough to really grasp how it's going to affect how we learn and how we think, how we deliver information. So I think this is the, the kind of thing that's going to require more study before we really understand what's going on. And then it'll all change and we'll have to study that. That would really be fascinating if we could just get a quick glimpse a hundred years in the future and yeah. just see what society is like and what, you know, what's the concept of learning at that point. Mm-hmm. Of course, by then, maybe we're just uh, doing the Matrix thing and just downloading information directly to our brains. Yeah, that looked painful, though, with a thing that's shooting in the back of your head. Yeah. Ow. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not for everyone. No, but, no. I'm just saying. There is no spoon. Yeah. So, uh, well, that wraps up this discussion. If you guys have any questions or comments, if you want to let us know what you think, you can follow us on Twitter or join our Facebook group. Uh, you'll find both uh, both of those under the handle of TechStuffHSW. Or you can email us, because we know you guys love to do that. We would love to re- be able to respond to all of you, but, man, it's getting hard. Um <laughs> The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. If you're a Tech Stuff fan, be sure to check us out on Twitter. Tech Stuff HSW is our handle. And you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash techstuffhsw. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?